Okay. <laughs> Sorry about the uh, catering situation. I had called earlier and told them that we were uh, going to be teaching on fasting. <laughs> and they got it all mixed up. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean no food. Uh, So actually, uh, I, don't, I don't know when or if it'll show up, but they actually, the church uh, uh, called out for pizza, and it'll be free if and when it gets here. So I don't know if they're going to bring it in, put it on the tables, or stick it over there, or whatever, but uh, if you see somebody walking in with pizza, go over and get you a slice. <laughs> That'll cure your hunger. And uh, unfortunately, the water ran out pretty fast. And... A couple of guys, I last saw them heading down that hall. I don't know if they know where they're going. <laughs> to my knowledge, there's no water down there. <laughs> so who knows? We'll just do the best we can with what we got. And I appreciate you being here. Uh, don't forget, make yourself a note, that next week we will be downstairs in the fellowship hall. Okay? So uh, if you come up here and there's nobody here, maybe that's when the light bulb will come on. I don't know, but uh, hopefully you can write yourself a note that we'll be downstairs in the fellowship hall next week. This is the ninth lesson out of ten lessons. So we had a, this is a ten-week series, and this is the ninth one. So we've come uh, almost to the end. And today we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And we begin in Luke uh, chapter 20, verse 19, where we picked it up last week. And as you've noticed, as we've been going through uh, the last few weeks, you've probably noticed how uh, amazing uh, Jesus' audience is. His audience are clueless disciples, and he's also got all these rejectors who are clueless. Nobody really knows what's going on, but Jesus. He's in complete control of everything. All of his audience is clueless. They're lost, very much like this uh, fellow in the movie clip today. <laughs> One of the more bizarre ones we've had. <laughs> All right. So this is, uh, today's lesson is about Jesus' uh, last week, the Passion Week. And as you go through the Passion Week, uh, the last two lessons, you can see that Jesus had full control. It's all about the sovereignty of God. Some people actually think that Jesus showed up to Jerusalem thinking everything was going to be great, there was going to be no problems, and then all this stuff just happened to him. Wrong. Jesus is completely uh, knowing everything that's going to happen. God is in complete control. It's all uh, about his plan for the redemption of mankind. And so he had full knowledge. Uh, it was all going to fulfill prophecy that had been laid down by prophets hundreds of years before. He had control over everything that happened as to when, where, how, and who. And, and you can see that in every one of these stories. He had been predicting what was getting ready to happen for a year. He'd been telling his uh, disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem at Passover. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to crucify me. And then I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. And they've been going, what? No, we're not going to allow that. You're our leader. We left everything to follow you. We're, we're not going to let anything happen to you. And so they were not with it, but Jesus alone completely understood God's plan of redemption 
and his disciples when the Holy Spirit comes after the resurrection, then and only then will they really figure out uh, all that Jesus did and what it all meant. So it's all about God's timing. Uh, it, for instance, the religious leaders planned to arrest Jesus. They had already figured out, you know, there's, the t there's too big a crowd during Passover. So we'll wait till right after Passover is over and all the crowd is left, and then we'll get him. And so they were going to arrest him after that. But Jesus, he had his own timing, and he sent Judas out to betray him uh, on the night of the Passover. So while they're there at the Last Supper, if you remember, uh, Jesus looks over to Judas and said, What you do, do quickly. Now, and he got up and left and went and told the, uh, the uh, religious leaders where Jesus would be in a, in a short while on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus sent Judas then. And Jesus, when he went after the Last Supper, he went up on the Mount of Olives. If you noticed, even knowing that they were coming, what did he do? He just hung out there and waited for them. He knew they were coming, knew what was going to happen, and he knew that it was God's will, and so he waited for them to come. And it was an agonizing, anxious time, you know, there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he had to pray, and the angels came and ministered to him, and he was so upset, if you remember, uh, Luke's account tells us that he even sweated profusely and bl even blood came out. That, that's how uh, difficult it was for him. Because, uh, you know, you think, well, he's God, you know, it couldn't have been that big a deal for him. No, you forget he's also man with all the feelings and all the nerve endings and all the fear, you know, that's in, makes up human nature. Jesus had that as well. So he felt the fear and the pain and the anxiety of what, what it was getting ready to happen. But he knew that he had to follow through on it. Uh, and so he waited for these soldiers. Uh, and it wasn't the choice of the priests. They didn't choose when to get him or how to get him or where to get him. Uh, Jesus chose all of it. And at his arrest, Jesus even prevented his disciples from defending him. Remember, uh, Peter pulls out the sword and cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus stops him and admonishes him and tells him to put the sword up. Don't you realize that if I wanted to prevent this, I could call 12 legions of angels and they would come and, and defend me. But this has to be done. This is the will of God. And this is his plan to redeem mankind with Jesus' uh, crucifixion. So uh, at the arrest, Peter... And all the guys had a completely different idea of what was going on and what they should do. But Peter lops this guy's ear off. Now, amazingly enough, again, Jesus has control. Jesus had predicted earlier that not one of them, he was going to be arrested, but none of them would be arrested. Well, for sure, after Peter lops the guy's ear off, they'll arrest him. Wrong. Jesus picks the guy's ear up and puts it back on. I can just imagine him say, Peter, we arrest you for the crime of, uh, oh, <laughs> his ear's back, you know. And so Jesus is in complete control. That's the whole point of all these stories. Uh, and he knew this was going to happen. He offered himself up. They didn't take him. He offered himself up, all according to the plan of God. 
So ultimately, uh, his control was evident even on the cross when he willfully gave up his own spirit. So it was even up to him. It was already planned when he would actually die at the very end of the day. Uh, and so uh, it, the text says he gave up his own spirit. They didn't take it from him. Uh, and normally, uh, if you remember the story, they would, on a crucifixion, they'd break the legs so that the, the person being crucified could no longer push up and breathe. But with Jesus, they didn't do that because the prophets, David had said, not a, not a single bone of his will be broken. They took a spear and shoved it in him and then pulled it out. They shoved it up through uh, his rib cage into his heart and then pulled it out, and all of his body, bodily fluids came out. Uh, and so all this, all fulfilled, all the prophecy uh, that uh, the, all the prophets had given, and God was in complete control of it. And the amazing thing, the, the, the prophet uh, Isaiah, and, and why would God do this? The prophet Isaiah predicted, prophesied in Isaiah 53, 4, he said, why does this happen? Why did this happen to Jesus? Here's why. Our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities, and he was pierced for our transgressions. And by his scourging we are healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So it had to happen. And God actually planned it. And Jesus gave himself up so that our sins would fall on him. And we would be declared righteous through this vicarious sacrifice of Christ on the cross. God's plan, God's gift to us. We talk about God's grace. This is God's grace, his great gift to us. And so in chapter 20, uh, during that week, you, you may wonder that Passion Week before the crucifixion, uh, what did Jesus do and where did he go? Well, he typically, and, and most of the information that we have is, he would be up on that temple mount. Not when it says in the temple, it doesn't mean actually in that temple building. The temple mount was a huge area, maybe 400 uh, yards long, four football fields long, and over two football fields wide. So it's a huge area with complexes of buildings and retail, a whole bunch of animals up that they were selling, the money changers that you're aware of, uh, all kinds of offices, depositories, et cetera, et cetera. But there was also huge spaces under porticos, under shade, for the teachers to teach. So it was the perfect place for Jesus to go the context of religion and people gathering up there at the temple and then he would have them sitting in these areas that were shaded and he would teach and he did that every day of the passion week so here he is in Luke 20 verse 19 uh, th this is kind of one of the famous uh, uh, confrontations he had with the religious leaders as he's teaching the people it says the scribes and the chief priests were unable to lay hands, unable to arrest him because the crowds were loving him and loving his teaching. And so at verse 20, they were watching him, and they said, okay, here's what we do. 
The people love him, but we'll send some of our craftier, more deceptive guys. They're called spies here. And they'll pretend, you know, to be real nice, and they'll give him compliments, you know, very deceptive. And then they'll ask him questions that will bring him down. They're, they're going to be trick questions that, that uh, they're going to ask him, thinking that he'll fall into their trap. They're going to outwit him. Let's see what happens. And so they pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him up. And they questioned him, verse 21. They said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. See, see the deception? Oh, you're a great teacher. Oh, you're the man that knows everything. You've got all the answers. You know, they're trying to get him to walk into this trap. And so they think they got the perfect trick question that's basically unanswerable. They're going to ask him one of the things, you know, they were under Roman occupation. And one of the things they loathed about it, among other things, was the taxes. I mean, it's bad enough to pay your own country's taxes and the temple tax they had to pay. But to pay a Roman uh, tax is just unacceptable. That's some Gentiles. They don't deserve our money. They hated it. And it was a source of great uh, desire to revolt against the Romans. And so it was a very sensitive area. So Jesus is asked the trick question, should we pay the taxes to the Romans, to Caesar? Thinking, okay, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, that'll be popular with the people, but the Romans will come arrest him because that's treason. But if he says, yes, pay the taxes, then the people will go, what? Pay the taxes? I'm not paying. I can't believe you. So it looked like a no-win deal. They had him. They would outfox him. And you know how people, you know how people hate to pay taxes. Even us, you know, when the tax time comes, you just, oh, I hate it, right? It was like the joke about the guy who wrote a letter to the IRS. And in the envelope, there was a check for $500. And he said, I haven't been able to sleep at night. So here's $500, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> Everybody's trying to get away with as little tax as possible. Okay? So he, here's the deal. Verse 23, Jesus detected the trickery. You know, it's a, like I said, it's a great advantage to be omniscient, Right? So he knows where they are and what they're about, what they're up to. And so he says to them, show me a denarius. That's that Roman coin, a silver coin. And they pull one out. And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And so all the Roman coins had the current Caesar on an inscription, a picture of whoever was Caesar at that time. And so they pull it out, and it's Caesar's picture. And what are they going to say? He says, whose, whose inscription does it have? And they said, well, well, it has Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Profound, wise, 
He answers the question, but he does so in such a way that convicts them of their sin. Isn't that awesome? And of course, if you don't even own a Bible, you've heard about this. You've heard that said. People use that, that phrase all the time. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so the thing that, that we need to focus in on I mean, we understand the, the Caesar part because what? These are, the Romans minted these coins. They control the economy. They're the ones that have the army that protect against attack. They have the police force that keeps the peace. They build the roads. So, yeah, you pay them taxes. That's their stuff. That's their due. But then he turns the tables and convicts them by saying, but render unto God's what is God's. What is due God? What do they owe God? A lot. Number one, you know, the first commandment. You worship God alone. There shall be no gods before me. You worship God alone. Secondly, we're told throughout the scripture to fear God. It's a healthy fear. It means to have reverence for God only, to, have, to be in awe of Him, to worship Him, to respect Him, to give Him your time. And then, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. The other side of that is you love God and not yourself. What the human race is prone to have love of self and never think about God. But God demands our love. That's what we were created for. So we serve God out of love. And also the scripture says so many places, give God your life. Live for him. Uh, Paul says it great in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever the activity is, your business, your vocation, your recreation, your home, your family, do all in the name of the Lord. You don't compartmentalize God. Okay, he's only there for Sundays and I live my life over here. No, God is in control. God owns everything is the point. So that is what they're actually not doing, what the religious are not doing. They're all about their own power and prestige. They want to get rid of Jesus because he's a threat to their power and prestige and their money, see? So for them, it's all about that. It's all about religious, outward, religious ritualistic stuff, going through the motions. But their heart is not the Lord's, and that's what he desires to have is your heart, okay? The next trick question, and I won't spend much time in it, but the Sadducees come in verse 27. And they were one of the political religious parties there. You've heard a lot about them. But really what set them apart was they did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they said, hey, we got this one. We got this one. This guy's been preaching. Jesus had been preaching about the resurrection. So they come up with this trick question. You know, if a guy's married to this girl and she dies and he marries another one and on and on, he ends up being married seven times and they say, in the resurrection, who's his wife? You know, like they've got him or something, you know. And, and his, his answer is, well, you fool. In heaven, they're like angels. 
I mean, there's no sex. There's no, you know, none of that. There, there isn't marriage in heaven. Everyone, you'll, you'll be with your spouse. You'll also be with everyone else whom you also love, see? And so Jesus corrects their uh, understanding by saying, don't you know what Moses said, verse 37, don't you know what Moses said? God told Moses that he is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, you see. And they're like, oh, okay, teacher, you've spoken well. They said they even compliment him because he whipped them. <laughs> and in verse 41 through uh, 45, he turns the tables. He says, okay, you've been asking me questions all this time. Let me ask you a question. Because Jesus had asserted his deity, God in the flesh. And they had always yelled, blasphemy. So he asked them a question that they, they won't be able to answer. They're familiar with David's writings, familiar with the Psalms. They know David's uh, prophecies about the Messiah. So he says to them, verse 41, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? In other words, everyone is expecting a descendant of David to be the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says, David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David therefore calls the Messiah Lord. And how is he his son also? Okay, the descendant of David, the son of David, is also his Lord. The human mind can't comprehend how that can work. But of course, what's the answer? Jesus is both. He's that unique. He's the unique son of God, unique son of David. So he's completely human in that sense. But he's also God in the flesh. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Right? So only Jesus could possibly fulfill this prediction. Jesus is both. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. So he completely baffled them with that one as well. So he's a physical descendant of David, but he's also David's Lord. Only Jesus can fulfill that prophecy. Okay. Uh, and then chapter 21, we won't spend any time on that. We're moving rapidly. But tw chapter 21 is his, you might call it, apocalyptic discourse. Uh, he's telling them about the second coming and the end times. And so he's, uh, you can see that uh, in this time there'll be great persecution. If you read it for yourself, there'll be great persecution against the Jews. But when the Messiah comes back, It'll be in great power and glory, and everyone will see. You know, people have asked me before, and it's, and it's a good question. Well, how do we know these, uh, all these people that keep coming from time to time saying, they're the Messiah, they're God. How do we know that they are or they're not? 
And, of course, Jesus says, anybody who says that, don't believe them. Because when I come, when the Messiah, true Messiah comes, it'll be in such power and glory that I'll cover the sky from east to west in God's glory. And it'll be such an awesome event that you can't miss it. Everybody will be able to see it, and everybody will know. There won't be a question. It won't be some goofy guy down in Waco held up in some farmhouse. No. It'll be clear. They will know without a doubt. Okay? And then uh, chapter 22 is basically the Lord's Supper. You know, they, he told them to prepare the Passover feast uh, in verse 7, chapter 22, verse 7. And so uh, he gave the command and they went and just as he said, again, Jesus is in control. He said, go talk to so-and-so. Ask him, tell him you need a room. He'll give you a room. Go get the Passover lamb and uh, have it sacrificed and prepare the meal. And so in verse 15, you have the actual scene there in the upper room with the Passover meal. He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's saying, I'm excited about this last Passover meal with you because I'm getting ready right after this to be arrested, suffer, and die. So this will be my last time with you his disciples and his last teaching his last shot at them so to speak to wake them up and he says to you he said to them I say to you I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God so they're going to be back together in full communion and fellowship in the kingdom of God and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he said take this and share it among yourselves It'll be, it'll be a symbol of his blood. And I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on. This is the last time we share this until the kingdom of God comes, when he comes back. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's the key, remember. You know, when you take communion and you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you remember something. I like to say, you know what you ought to do in communion? Give yourself a sermon. Preach a sermon to yourself. Explain to yourself what this represents. Christ's blood shed for you. Christ's body given up for you. Remember what Jesus did. And so he says, in the same way, he, take, he took the cup, and he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant. So this is the inauguration. This is the beginning of the new covenant of grace. The old covenant of law is going to be superseded by the new covenant of grace. Right? And so Jesus said, I have come to inaugurate, and my crucifixion will make possible this new covenant of grace. God's free gift in Christ. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with us at the table. So there's Judas sitting there like, uh-oh. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, 
but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so from that point on, in, in the Last Supper, uh, they're all looking around trying to figure out who it is. And Jesus tells Judas to get up and what you do, do quickly, go out. So he gets up and walks out. Now, notice that the other disciples look around going, even though he pointed at Judas, even though he said, the guy that I dipped my uh, thing, you know, my bread in, get gravy with, that's him. Even though he gave all those indications, they still didn't get it. Why? He was the guy they trusted most. Back in John 12, we see that uh, he was the uh, treasurer because they trusted him with the money. But then John puts a deal, but we found out later, he stole the money. <laughs> so they got no idea who the betrayer is. To them, this Judas guy's a great guy. He's a trusted leader amongst them. They're clueless about what's going on. And so he tells them that that night he'll be arrested. They're all going to fall away. And, of course, what does Peter say? Not me. And you know the story. He says, yeah, you'll fall away, but I'm going to strengthen you. And when you come back, when you repent and come back, I want you to minister to the others. Okay? So now in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 39 through 46, uh, we already talked about this, so we won't go through it. But uh, Jesus' agony in the garden, knowing he's waiting for them to come and arrest him, that it has to happen, and he's willing to have it happen. And then uh, verse 47 and following there in chapter 22, you have his arrest and trial. You see him, uh, Peter, again, pull the sword out and cut the guy's ear off, and Jesus stops him, heals the ear, because this has to happen. God's in control of this. It's his will that it happened. He basically had a series of trials. They, they take him first to uh, one of the high priests before the sun comes up, which is illegal. But they do it because they want to get their, source, their story straight. And then they take him to the Sanhedrin. And then uh, after Jesus says that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, they go, blasphemy. So they've got uh, everything they need to convict him, and so then they take him to Pilate because they don't have the right under Roman rule. Only the Romans can give permission for capital punishment. That's why they had to take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So they take, it, take him to him first thing in the morning, and you see him before Pilate, and Pilate does everything he can to get out of this. He talks to him for a while, and he says, well, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He hasn't done anything. He's completely innocent completely. I find nothing wrong. And they say, well, he's from up there in the gallery. Take him over to see Herod. So he goes over there in Herod. And, and by the way, notice after each one of these trials, both of them before the, the uh, high priest and, and now before Pilate and then Herod and then again Pilate, they beat him up each time. And they scourge him. You saw the movie. They whipped all the skin off his back. By the time they get through with him and all these trials, there's no telling how much blood he's lost and what kind of pain he's in. All his nerve endings are exposed. I mean, it's tough. And he knew this was coming. And he still stepped up and took this cup that God gave him. 
they even offer, Pilate's trying so hard to get out of this, even offers, you know, to let him go. And they say, no, we, you know, give us somebody else. And you have the story about Barabbas, who, who is actually guilty. And they let him go, but the innocent one, they crucify. And think of the irony of that. The one who's innocent dies for the one who's guilty, who goes free. And then verse 26, Luke 23, 26, you see the story of the crucifixion. They led him away. You know, he's got that, that cross piece of the cross that you can imagine how heavy that was and how hard. So they pressed Simon of Cyrene into carrying it. And he's carrying it through the streets there. If you've been to Jerusalem, you see how narrow those streets are and, and how crowded they can be at the same time. And so he's stumbling, trying to carry that thing, and the Simon is helping him, and the daughters of Jerusalem are weeping. You would think Jesus would be, if he was me or any of you, you'd be thinking of yourself. How bad this hurts. What kind of pain you're in. What was getting ready to happen. Jesus thinks only of everyone else. He's the only one there in this whole scene that's thinking of other people. So these poor women are weeping, and he's saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but instead weep for yourselves and for your children. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And then verse 32, two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. He'll be numbered and, and, and killed among the transgressors. He'll be counted as a transgressor and be killed with them, Isaiah said. So again, another prophecy fulfilled. And they were taunting him. Everyone along the way you know, was making fun of him and taunting him and mocking. And Jesus took it all. And what was his response to all the mocking, all the scourging, spitting on him Jesus was saying verse 34 Father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing wow who could do that think how distant that is from who we are but Jesus was sinless he was perfect he alone very totally completely unique person and they make in verse 35 a statement, and I'm going to ask you if you think this is true. He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ, the Son of God. Point being, you can't save yourself. They say it again in verse 37, save yourself. If you're who you say you are, save yourself. My question to you is, could he have saved himself? Is there anything too difficult for God? Wrong. We had a no here, he walked right into the trap. think of it is there anything that God can't do yeah he can't lie he can't steal he can't cheat neither can Jesus go against God's will he came here to speak the words of God and do the will of God so he must get up on that cross he must be crucified and he must die And one of the criminals, verse 39, remember two, two thieves, two criminals are being crucified on either side of him. And one of them 
who was hanging there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Do you not claim to be the Messiah? Then save yourself and us. So what did this guy want? He wanted physical salvation. Get me off this cross if you can. But look at the contrast here. The other thief, the other criminal answered and rebuked his accomplice and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve this, we're guilty. We've committed crimes. We got what's coming to us. This guy's innocent. Verse 42, then that thief who had proclaimed Jesus as innocent turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He believed in Jesus. He not only confessed his own sin, but he believed in Jesus as being completely sinless and innocent. And then when he says, when you come in your kingdom, He's expressing that I believe you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and that you will in the future judge the human race and set up your kingdom. So have mercy upon me and let me be with you. He believed right there. This guy who had probably lived a debauched life his whole life. Amazing. They say God's grace is amazing. This is what that means. It's incredible. By the way, I, I, I skipped over, but I'd like to go back and point out more prophecy that was fulfilled. It says they cast lots for his clothes, dividing up his garments among themselves. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen said exactly that. This fulfilled that. And when I remember when I read that, first read David say that in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, I thought, well, that's pretty risky. I mean, why don't you make some broad prediction like all these psychics do that, that, you know, you can pretty much claim anything that happens. I mean, what if they had played gin rummy for it? I mean, it's a risky prediction. What if they'd done rock, paper, scissors or something? No, he said they cast lots for his clothing. How do these guys know this stuff? It's almost as if it's inspired by God. Yeah. And so in conclusion, let me just say and point out to you the gospel that's in this story of the thief on the cross. How amazing God's grace is that this guy, totally undeserving, by repenting even at the last minute and believing in Jesus, can be saved. That's kind of mind-blowing to the human mind, right? So look at the gospel here. First of all, you know, first part of the gospel, you can see in verse 41, man is sinful and separated from God. He says, this guy is perfect. This is God. We are sinners. We deserve this. The thief recognized that and expressed it. Secondly, also in verse 41, he says, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. This is the only one who can take care of me and put me in the kingdom. 
So through Jesus, you can know and experience the love of God in Christ. And the thief recognized who Jesus was and that it was Jesus who determined whether he went to heaven or not. And then thirdly, there's, there's one more thing, one more element. You've got to make this yours. All these things are true. You believe it, but you've got to make it yours. So we must individually receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. The thief surrendered himself to Jesus there uh, in verse 43 and said, I'm all yours. I'm in your hands. And then Jesus guaranteed his salvation. There's the gospel. God's grace offered to all who believe. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and how powerful it is. And as we study the life of Jesus, that last week we're just amazed at his omniscience, amazed at God's plan being carried out. All the prophets wrote about it hundreds of years before Jesus fulfilled all of them. Jesus is in complete control and he doesn't dodge it. He doesn't try to get out of it. Lord, he completely carries through your will, so that we can be saved. And we thank you and praise you, Lord, for that salvation. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.